Let's just pray together. Let's pray. Father, we have read your word and we thank you, Lord, for the apostles who so many centuries ago, like Luke, recorded your word. But now we pray that we might understand it and that on that basis we might respond appropriately this evening. Pour out your grace, we do pray. And we ask earnestly, in Jesus' name, Amen. Just recently, I read an article that promised to improve my public speaking. And uh, always needing to improve, I thought I should read the article and see what advice it gave, despite a, a slightly dodgy and concerning title. The article was titled, The Top Eight Ways to Make Your Audience Love You. Hmm. Here's some of what it said. It said, create a friendly environment for your audience. It said, exude positive energy. Appear friendly, confident, and relaxed. Tell stories And use humor, it advised. And above all, I'm not going to suffer you all eight points, but the final point, above all it said, be respectful. Have respect for every member of your audience at all times. Well, if this is the philosophy, and it is the philosophy, of modern communication experts in 2007, clearly the Lord Jesus Christ who was himself a master communicator, had not read the book. Or if he had read the book, then clearly he threw it out the window on some occasions. See, unlike almost all communicators, both ancient and modern, it was not above Jesus to abandon the softly, softly approach, confronting his audience and challenging their sensibilities, not least with regards to their lives of sin. On such occasions, Jesus set out not to make his audience feel relaxed, but distinctly uncomfortable. And it was such an occasion to to, to which we turn this evening, that we have just read about a few moments ago. And so as we continue our, our studies in Luke's Gospel, we've titled it, Good News of Great Joy for All People, we come to witness this staggering confrontation between Jesus and the generation of his day. As Jesus pronounces both wickedness and woe to the generation in which he lived. Now, I do invite you to to turn there again. If you close your Bibles, please open it once more to Luke's Gospel, chapter 11. Verses 29 to 53. And really just to ask uh, with me this question. Uh, Why is it that that Jesus goes on the offense such as he does here? That's really the key question. Uh, Not so much what did Jesus say, that is pretty clear on the face of it, but why? 
What caused Jesus to say such hard things to his contemporaries? What was it about them that provoked such a response? And as we have our Bibles open, the answer doesn't remain elusive for long. Because in the opening verse of our opening section, and it's also going to be our opening heading, we learn there that this is a wicked generation. You'll see it right there in verse 29. Jesus says this is a wicked generation. Now, need I say that Jesus doesn't mean wicked in modern parlance. Where, where wicked has come to mean the opposite of what your grandmother used to thought it meant. So, if a young person comes to me today and says to me, Colin, you're wicked, uh, I, I would probably take that as a compliment because it means wicked cool. Uh, funnily enough, none of them have done that yet. I, I'm not quite sure. Uh, but, but you understand, don't you, that when Jesus uses the word wicked, he's doing so in the classic sense. He's saying that these people are wicked in the wicked bad sense, in the wicked evil sense. And if you really think about that, it's a shocking thing that Jesus is saying. As he looks out across the nation of his day, the the people of God of his day, he says this whole nation is morally bankrupt. They are a wicked generation. Rather, Rather like looking across the whole nation of Scotland tonight and saying they are a pretty wicked bunch. But that is what Jesus is saying. And it's something of a turn up for the books in terms of what we usually think of wicked in the bad sense. Because isn't it usually the case that, that the newspapers reserve that designation for the worst of the worst? for a tiny minority of society, for for rapists, for genocidal generals. These sorts of people are wicked. But no, says Jesus, this whole generation have a wicked disposition. It's not the thing that the average Scot on the street tends to think, is it? Aren't we basically good people? I mean, especially the Scots. You know, you see them over in France at these tournaments, the the Jolly Tartan Army, and all the other countries really like us. You know, surely we are pretty good folks, moral people. It's a common idea today, and it's what the people in Jesus' generation thought of themselves. But Jesus says again in verse 29, this is a wicked generation. Now, what is the basis for Jesus' assertion? If you know Jesus' teaching at all, you'll understand that he never says anything without good reason. If he makes a forceful point, you can be sure that there's a rigorous basis and underpinning to it. And so we see this in the remainder of the passage, that Jesus makes a strong case for this assertion that this is a wicked generation. And he says there are really three strands of evidence. Three strands of evidence. Here is the first. Number one, they reject the word of God. This generation rejects the word of God. Now, we take this mainly from verses 29 and verse 30. But actually, verse 28 provides the crucial context. Because in in verse 28, where we left things last week, Jesus says this, he says, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Jesus' emphasis is that the blessed person, 
the, the spiritually satisfied person is not the one who has the right parentage or, or who has the right uh, intellectual pedigree or, or even the best financial situation with money in the bank, as secure as that is these days. No, he says, the blessed person is the one who hears God's word, who receives God's gospel, and who embraces God's message with the obedience that comes from faith. That is the blessed person. And this is a crucial context. Because as we come to verse 29, we find that this generation are really putting this to the side. They are in fact doing the very opposite of what Jesus has commanded. This is a wicked generation. Why? Verse 29, it asks for a miraculous sign. As opposed to what? As opposed to believing God's word. It asks for a miraculous sign. Now, signs in the Gospels, we need to be just clear on what this is. Signs were those miracles of Jesus that had an express purpose to point to Jesus' identity. In other words, the ultimate goal of a sign or a sign miracle it wasn't simply to heal you, although that was a good byproduct, or to impress you, but ultimately it was to bring you to the person of Jesus. And to ask yourself the question, who is this man who does miracles like that? Where does he come from? Who sent him? And what is his message? Is there something I need to respond to in this message? That was the purpose of these signs. They were just like signposts. They pointed to something else, to someone else. And yet, unfortunately, this crowd, this generation, seems to have totally bypassed this point. And rather than looking for genuine salvation, Jesus says they're really just looking for a show. They want entertainment, not authentic spiritual encounter. And so they say to Jesus, could you, could you do some more of those signs for us? Maybe something more impressive than the feeding of the 5,000. You know, that was pretty good, but can you top that one? How about the one where you walk on water? You know, we've heard that, we've not seen it, but we've heard that's a pretty good one. And what are they doing? They are demonstrating their lack of faith and their unwillingness to receive God's message. And so Jesus says, I'm not playing this game. I'm not giving you the plethora of signs that you demand. In fact, he says there's only one more sign that you're going to see. You see it in verse 30 there, the sign of Jonah. Almost certainly references Jesus' resurrection in a day to come. Matthew 12, which is a, a parallel passage to this, brings it out even more clearly. That just as Jonah, you remember that chap from the Old Testament, swallowed by the fish, just as Jonah was three days and three nights buried, as it were, as it were, dead in the belly of the fish. You remember how he was spewed up by the fish and how he pitched up on the streets of Nineveh to their amazement, alive, preaching. So says Jesus, I also will die. I will be buried, literally, and I will rise from the dead and it will prove, it will be a sign as to who I am. And it is still a powerful sign today, isn't it? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
What a compelling thing it is to take someone, a friend of yours, who is not a Christian, and to direct them to the resurrection. And to say, what do you make of that? And yet even then, is it not the case that being a sign, it ultimately points to the man and the message. That's where we need to finish and conclude. You see, in the, in the Acts of the Apostles, as you read the Apostles preaching about the resurrection, you don't find them standing alongside their contemporaries, gazing at the resurrection and saying, well, look at that, wasn't that impressive? You know, Jesus can do a lot of other amazing things as well as this kind of, kind of stuff. Let me tell you about some more of these things. No, they would say, Jesus has been raised from the dead as he claimed he would be. He was witnessed to have died, he was witnessed to have been buried, and he was witnessed alive. Therefore, this gospel message is the true gospel. He is who he claimed to be. Repent, turn from your sin, and believe the good news. And therefore, as we speak to our non-Christian friends, this is pretty basic perhaps to us as Christians, but we need to remember this. We must constantly bring them back to the good news itself. Because so often, our dear non-Christian friend will want to walk away from the message. They'll want to get off message. And they're happy to discuss this or that evidence for the resurrection. And what's this thing about Jesus being God and man? And so they go through the issues. And it's a good thing to talk with them about these matters. But sometimes it goes on and on and on. And it turns out that our non-Christian friend is a little bit like Columbo. You know the detective? He's always got another last thing. There's always another question to follow and they never seem to get to the heart of the matter. We need to say to folks, wait a minute. What do you believe about the gospel message? What do you believe about God who is your creator? What do you believe about the fact that the Bible says that you and I have rebelled against God, that we're sinful people? What do you believe about the fact that Jesus came into this world and that he died a sinless death, that he was crucified for your sins, and that you need to trust, repent and trust in him. What do you believe about that? You see, nobody is saved by signs. Nobody is saved by signs. New creation comes through good news. As it is heard, as it is believed. And sadly, Jesus says, this generation has rejected the word of God. And it is on this basis that Jesus says they are a wicked generation. But he also goes on to say that they refuse the Son of Man. That's the second thing. This is something of a domino effect here. You know how dominoes work. You knock down the first one, the second one comes afterwards. And Jesus goes on to say that those who reject the Word of God necessarily refuse the Son of Man. Again, perhaps you've spoken to someone who's not a Christian and they've They've set up this kind of dichotomy. On the one hand, they say, well, I, I don't really accept that gospel message that you're pressing me on. I don't believe that stuff about me being a sinner and Christ being the Savior. And then they add, so that you're presumably not offended, they, they, they say, you know, but Jesus, he's quite, he is quite a good guy, right enough. I, I like Jesus. And we need to point out to that person that this is a false dichotomy, that they cannot have their cake and eat it. You see, you cannot reject the message of the Bible. You cannot reject the message of the gospel without rejecting Jesus himself. Because Jesus is the one who lies at the heart of the message. 
The gospel is a message about Jesus. And if you reject the gospel, if you reject the word of God, you reject the Son of God. Or as he's designated here, the Son of Man. And this is a particularly wicked thing. To reject Jesus himself, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the light of the world, in person. Seems to me that's what Jesus is saying. This is much worse than just rejecting the prophets of long ago. See, that's the point of of his mentioning these two figures, uh, the Queen of the South and the people of Nineveh. The Queen of the South, that's not a football team, by the way, is a lady we find in 1 Kings chapter 10. And she travels to Jesus from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, one of Israel's greatest kings, most wise kings. But no one greater than Solomon is here, verse 31. I am here, Jesus is saying. And the implication is, you guys will hardly cross this street to listen to me, to really hear what I'm saying. And a shameful comparison could be made between you and the people of Nineveh as well. The people of Nineveh, that truly was a wicked generation, who nevertheless repented at the preaching of Jonah. Pitched up on a beach somewhere, a little bit smelly, and he comes along and he preaches, and the whole city repents. Isn't Jesus preaching better than Jonas? Have Jesus' contemporaries not got much more reason to repent in the very presence of Jesus himself? But Jesus says the men of Nineveh will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And no one greater than Jonah is here. You know, the same is true today. It is Jesus himself who confronts us in the Gospels. And we live in a time after Jesus' coming. It is not just the prophets that we are rejecting. It is Christ himself, the one who came into the world and who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Are we still rejecting him this evening? See, we have much more light than the Ninevites had. We have much more reason to believe than the Queen of Sheba enjoyed. And yet, sadly, we can be like this generation. Close our eyes to the light. That's the third thing that Jesus mentions. They also resist the light of God. And you see, again, this is a domino effect. Uh, If we reject the word of God, we therefore refuse the Son of Man. And then if we do those two things, the net result is that we resist the light of God. What is the light that Jesus is speaking of in this little parable in verse 33. Is it not himself? Is Jesus not the lamp which has been placed on its stand? Is Jesus not the light of the world that comes to illumine the darkness of the world? See, both this man and his message have been placed on a stand in order to enlighten the darkness. And yet Jesus says this is only half the story. See, whether the light is received depends on the vision of the one who receives it. And he says, basically, this isn't difficult stuff, he says you can have two types of eyes. You can have good eyes or you can have bad eyes. If your eyes are good, verse 34, obviously your whole body is full of light. You can see things. Light enters in. You enjoy all the benefits of that. But if your eyes are bad, then no light enters in. 
no matter how wonderful the light is. Now, of course, he's speaking spiritually. He's speaking in, in picture reality of spiritual things. And he's saying that those who receive the Word of God and who receive the Son of Man are like those who have good eyes. They receive the light. And then he says that those who have the bad eyes are like those who reject the message and who reject the Son of Man. What I find very intriguing about this is that whereas in the natural course of things, there's very little you can do about your good or your, or your bad eyes, maybe get some glasses or something like that, spiritually speaking, Jesus says we are responsible for how we see. You notice that? See to it then, he says in verse 35, that the light within you is not darkness. You must see to it. You have responsibility for this, is what he's saying. Now, it's true what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. This is why we pray earnestly that God will remove the blinders that the devil has put in place, that by the power of his Spirit, They will see the light. It's right that we pray that. Nevertheless, this text also reminds us that human beings are responsible. And that if we do not see the light, it is our own doing. It's not the quality of the light, it's the quality of our eyesight that's the problem. And so if you're here this evening and you're not a Christian, or if you know somebody who's not a Christian, we should be praying for them. And we should be challenging them to open up their eyes. You're here this evening and you're not a Christian. Can I just say to you very directly, stop resisting the light of God. Stop refusing the Son of God. Stop rejecting the message of God and just open up your eyes with the help of God's Holy Spirit. Because together, these three things are the epitome of wickedness. This is not wickedness as the world tends to understand it, but this is from God's point of view. Well, moving on, we need to consider Jesus' uh, second point, or final point, which is, which is a woeful leadership. A woeful leadership. Uh, Jesus leaves the large crowd. He's invited uh, into the home of a religious leader. And uh, clearly, as we come to this story, Jesus still hasn't read the book on how to win friends and influence people because he's about to confront this very respected leader with some home truths and his leadership contemporaries. So it's obvious as we come to this part of the passage, if you are a leader in any respect, at any level, you should especially pay close attention. Don't switch off if you're not in leadership because there's still much to learn here but pay careful attention and be challenged if you're a leader. Now, whereas in the last section, the the key word was the word wickedness, in this section, the obvious key term is the word woe. Woe. In fact, there are six woes that Jesus pronounces in the passage. And you need to understand that that these these woes uh, are not so much fire and brimstone judgment. You know, that's what we might think. Really, the idea of of, of woe was of a lament or a despair. A deep-spent sense of grief and disappointment. You see, there is little that is more grieving to the heart of Jesus than leaders of God's people who don't live like it, who don't lead like it. 
But let's look at why Jesus says woe to these leaders. And there are six woes, but I'm going to boil them down just for the sake of time to really four main points why Jesus says woe. Number one, number one, their hearts are impure. Their hearts are impure. Jesus says woe because the hearts of these leaders on the inside are impure. And Jesus begins to teach this by way of a very powerful visual illustration. He goes into this house and he deliberately ignores the conventions of the day. The normal protocol was to wash before the meal. And Jews did this not for hygiene reasons, but for ceremonial cleanliness. So that all the the bad sinful stuff you would got on you during the day could be washed off. And so the Pharisee, Luke tells us, was surprised, verse 38, when Jesus did not wash. I mean, you would especially be washing your P's and Q's in the house of a Pharisee, but Jesus doesn't wash. Now, Jesus hasn't simply forgotten. He's about to teach a lesson in leadership. Now, you Pharisees, verse 39, clean the outside of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. It's very plain what Jesus is saying, isn't it? He's contrasting the great attention that these leaders give to the outside the exterior behavior over and against the mess that is on the inside. It's rather like some of the cupboards in our homes, most of our homes, I would imagine. You know, when you get the guest round, they're nice and sheen and clean on the outside, but you just hope they don't open your cupboards because it's messy in there. And Jesus says, you folks, you're, you're so concerned with cleaning the outside, keeping it looking spick and span, but inside you're a horrible, horrible mess. Nobody would know it because you go further than the law in your external efforts, that's verse 42. But in actual fact, you have neglected to cultivate certain virtues like a love for justice and a love for God. What a terrible thing to say about religious leaders. What should they have done? Jesus says you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You should have been committed to holiness in your devotional life and you should have stayed committed to the hard work of deeds in your outward involvement. God made the outside and the inside. Verse 40. Leaders, God made the outside and the inside. There's a verse to meditate on. What did David say in the Psalms? He said that God wants pure hearts and clean hands. He wants both. And yet how often, how easily do we forget this? Isn't this a danger for leaders especially? Isn't it much easier for busy leaders to keep their hands clean than their hearts clean? You can be a leader and look good with all the exterior stuff that you do. With all the meetings that you attend. You're probably at more meetings than anyone else in the whole of the church. You can impress people with your busyness. You can, you, you can show people something with your praying, with your preaching, with your visiting. And people might on the outside say, hey, that, that must be a pretty godly person. They must be walking pretty closely with the Lord. But is that so? Is it not frighteningly easy in the words of the Apostle Peter, to have the appearance of godliness, but in reality, denying its power. 
Leaders, if we do not maintain interior purity, woe to us. Woe to us and to our congregation. I think it was Billy Graham who said this. He said, when wealth is lost, nothing is lost. When health is lost, something is lost. And when character is lost, all is lost. And that is never more true than in the life of a leader. Sadly, Jesus despaired because of the moral poverty of the leaders of his day. But there's a second reason he says woe about these leaders. Secondly, he adds that their heads are puffed up. In verse 43, Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. You see, verse 42 told us that they were lacking in their love for God, in their love for justice. So what is it that these leaders love? They love the most important seats in the synagogue. Interestingly, historians tell us that that these seats in the synagogue were not only located down the front, you know, as the front row, they actually faced the front. Kind of like what you might sometimes see at at a Christian conference. And they would line the stage of the platform behind the speaker. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that in some situations. But in their case, they loved it. They loved people to see them up the front. Oh, what a danger it is to be up front. What a peril a pulpit can be. Whatever that pulpit is as a leader, you have a pulpit if you're a leader. And one sign of this, that you're heading in this direction, is that you can begin to love what Jesus calls the greetings in the marketplace. In these days, uh, there were elaborate greetings that took place as you met people in, in public spaces. But if you were a religious leader, then often the greeting you would receive would be especially over the top. Oh, your esteemed reverence of such and such a synagogue. It hardly befits me to meet such a high and holy figure as you. And so they they would go on. And the Pharisees loved these greetings. Now we live in a generation where leaders are often decried rather than esteemed. And there's not often in our time, unfortunately, a lot of respect for leaders. But nevertheless, unfortunately, sin doesn't go out of fashion. Sin doesn't have a sell-by date. And how many of us leaders, even in the climate in which we live, let's be honest, have at times sought and cherished this sin of loving recognition I've known what it is to sit in some church somewhere where I'm preaching and uh, they go more over the top when you visit somewhere. And you know, you get the whole title laid out. Reverend, you know, Colin Adams, Associate Pastor, Charlotte Baptist Chapel. And they go through the whole thing. And you begin to think to yourself, who is this guy? You know, sounds pretty impressive. And then I remember it's me, you know. But then I remind myself, you know, it's sin. It's a sin if I love that. It's a sin if I crave that. So hopefully a positive thing about this church that we try not to make too big a deal of titles and what everyone's called. You know, you can, you can call Peter, Peter. Rodney, Rodney. He won't, they won't fall out with you. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying there's not a place for respect 
for titles. We must understand what people do. We must honor our leaders. But we must beware, if we are a leader, of the odious threat of pride. It is sober and necessary for every leader to ask himself periodically, has pride taken root in my life, in my heart, and in my ministry? Is there evidence of pride in my leadership? The leaders of Jesus' day clearly had never made such an evaluation. And so their problems stack up, their hearts are unclean, their heads are puffed up, and there's a third thing Jesus says, their words are deadly. You see, there are numerous indications in this text that these leaders' impurity and pride not only affected themselves, but had disastrous consequences for those who followed their teaching. So in verse 44, Jesus says that one deadly result will be the spread of impurity. Jesus says, uh, you leaders, you're like unmarked graves that men walk over without knowing. Uh, In these days, uh, tombs were not always so clearly marked. And sometimes you could be walking down a a road and you might be walking at the edge of the road and you wouldn't even realize you had stepped over a grave. And in the Jewish understanding, this contact with the dead made you ceremonial unclean. And you know, the worst thing was that you didn't even know you'd done it unless someone pointed it out afterwards. And so, says Jesus, are the people who follow your teaching. Inevitably, as go the shepherds, so go the sheep. And if your hearts are impure, it won't take long before impurity is part and parcel of the lives of those you follow. Secondly, he highlights the danger of legalism. Legalism. One of the the biblical law experts is sitting around the table and he's been listening to this and he pulls Jesus up. He says, you know, Jesus, when you're insulting these Pharisees, you insult us as well. Because we're in league with the the Pharisees. And Jesus says, that's right, I am insulting you as well. In fact, he says, you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourself will not lift one finger to help them. See, one of the marks of a false teacher as opposed to a true gospel preacher is does the teacher add burdens or lift burdens? The gospel preacher lifts burdens by offering grace to the weak and the heavy laden. It's like the old song. You remember we used to sing it in my old church. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. If the preacher doesn't leave his congregation with burdens lifted because he's offered the gospel, he hasn't taken them to Calvary. Maybe taken them to Mount Sinai, but he's not taken them to Calvary. You see, these false teachers, they have no access to the gospel themselves, and so they have nothing else to offer but more rules and more regulations, and they just weigh the people down. And then he adds a third danger in verse 52. He says that ultimately, and worst of all, you will lead people to eternal ruin. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who are entering. You teachers, you have the key to knowledge. You've got the Bible, you've got the Scriptures, you've got the message of salvation. But not only have you failed to unlock the door yourself, but you're actually barricading the door and not letting others come in. 
It's one of the worst things, isn't it, about a church with a, with a minister or a preacher who is unsaved. It's bad enough that he himself is not a Christian, but what hope has his congregation got when he's never preaching the gospel? And there's a final thing Jesus adds. One more reason why he says woe about these leaders. Their hearts are impure, heads are puffed up, words are deadly, but finally their wills oppose Jesus. In uh, verse uh, 54, you get the, the sort of outcome of the whole story. After Jesus' hard comments, we read of the plot to kill Jesus. You know, the Pharisees and the experts in the law who have been getting it from Jesus say, we're going to get him. We're going to kill him. And I think that's what lies behind Jesus' comments in verses 47 to 51, which might seem a little bit strange. In light of this knowledge which Jesus had of what they were about to do to him, Jesus says, these leaders, you're really no different than your forefathers. He says, it's no surprise that your, your forefathers killed the prophets and that you build the tombs. That's what they did. They had these big building projects for prophets that had been killed. They started the job, you're going to finish it. Because you share the same killer instinct as them. And of course, they're about to kill the greatest of all, the Lord Jesus Christ, greater than all the prophets. Is this not the utter epitome of woeful and wicked leadership? When it comes to the point when we outright oppose the person of Christ. Woe to such leaders and the wicked generation that follows them. Pretty sobering stuff, isn't it? In fact, as we're coming to the end of our study, and I was, this was really the main question that came out for me, I, I began to ask myself this, is there any redeeming value in what Jesus is saying here? Is there, in fact, any hope for wicked people? Is there any hope for woeful leaders who have sinned in these ways, some of these ways or all of these ways? Is there any hope? Haven't we all, haven't we all failed in some of the respects that Jesus has been describing? Is there any hope for a wicked and woeful generation? Well, I think the answer is that for some in Jesus' day, the answer to that question is a definite no. Jesus wasn't just being dramatic when he spoke of the judgment to come, of these folks standing up in the judgment and condemning some of these folks. Because tragically, even after Jesus' resurrection, the great sign of Jonah, many would still reject Jesus, the man in his message. And so I need to tell you tonight, without pleasure, that if you remain in that camp, and you finally reject Jesus, Jesus will finally reject you. Don't be in that camp. You need not be in that camp. And the, the basis on which I can say that to you this evening is because Jesus was going to the cross to die at the hands of wicked men for wicked men and women. Little did they know when they crucified Jesus that he was dying on the cross so that such as they might be forgiven. And praise God, some, some of these Pharisees some of these law experts, some of this generation became Christians. You know, one of the most prolific 
writers in the New Testament. The most prolific, the Apostle Paul. You know the story of the Apostle Paul, the background of the Apostle Paul, what he did before he was an Apostle? Till about midlife, Paul, or Saul as he was called then, was a Pharisee. He was a very respected religious teacher in his day, no doubt. He had all the religious education and learning. He was regular attender at the synagogue and all these such things. But his heart was impure and his head was puffed up and his words were deadly and his will opposed Jesus. He wasn't involved in in the crucifixion of Jesus, but we do know that he was involved in the first martyr after Jesus' death, the martyrdom of Stephen. But on a road to Damascus, you remember the story? Christ confronted him. He was stopped in his tracks, and for three days he was blind physically. But the wonderful thing was, the light of the gospel had shone in to his heart and into his soul. He had trusted Christ. And he could say later, he could speak later, he could say that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, wicked people, of whom I am the worst. However bad you are this evening, or perhaps however good you thought you were until you came in here tonight, you also can say what Paul said. That Christ came to save me from my sin, from my wickedness. Uh, Our Christianity Explored uh, course, you know, it's got a tagline, you've maybe seen it. It says, you're more wicked than you ever imagined. But you are more loved than you ever dreamed. That's the gospel. Embrace it this evening. And go out and tell it. And leaders, let's live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, this is a hard message tonight. But Lord, we thank you that sometimes when our souls are hard, you take a a pickaxe and you just break us open. And so Lord, I pray that your word would come with that kind of power tonight. Not because of words spoken, but because of the power and the convicting of your Holy Spirit. So may we all come for your grace, for your amazing grace this evening. And know that while we are sinful and wicked, that you have given your Son for us. Oh God, help us to live lives worthy of the Gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The final song that we're